Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for listening. The phenomena of gambling and risk-taking is quite often very pervasive, and it can cause a tremendous amount of damage in a person's life and in their family's lives as well. We need to better understand this process. Dr. Luke Clark is the director of the Center for Gambling Research at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. He kindly agreed to talk to us today about some of the concepts related to gambling, its treatment, and so on. Dr. Clark, thank you so much for joining us. No, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on the podcast, Abby. Let's begin with somewhat of a large question, but I think an important question. How do we explain the impetus for why some people do things that is clearly a gambling thing, clearly against the odds? They're probably not going to win, but they do it. I do think gambling raises profound questions about human decision-making at a very broad level. We can see that this is a very popular activity across most jurisdictions where gambling is available. We see about 70 to 80 percent of the population uh, doing some gambling on at least an occasional basis, so past-year gambling in, in epidemiological studies. At the same time, it's also very widely known, particularly by gamblers, that gambling games generally have a house edge. So the slot machine or the, or the casino or the betting shop takes a cut. Most gambling games have a house edge where the casino or the slot machine is taking a cut of all the money that's wagered. So why do people play if they, if they know that? We need to think about where the thrill, where the reinforcement comes from, and we need to look at whether they can evaluate those decisions in an accurate way. Now, a lot of our research over the last decade or so has been looking at what we call cognitive distortions that gamblers experience. So different ways in which they misperceive odds, the probabilities, or maybe they misperceive their level of control over what is ultimately a chance-determined outcome. And we can see a lot of these biases and distortions in gamblers, and these styles of thinking also seem to be increased in people with gambling problems. The overlap with addictions must be very great. Do we consider gambling the equivalent of an addiction? Well, we do now, yes. That's been a, an important development in uh, the last couple of years. Pathological gambling was first recognized in psychiatry in the DSM-3 in 1980. And back then, and in the DSM-4 as well, it was housed in the impulse control disorders. And in the DSM-5 in 2013, it then moved house. It was recategorized alongside substance use disorders. And in fact, it's still the only behavioral addiction in that category. So it is basically the sort of template for a behavioral addiction where the activity is not taking a new chemical into the brain. It's the behavior that the person does. That decision to move gambling, pathological gambling, was based on quite a lot of different evidence that the DSM-5 task force considered. You can see similarities just in the symptom profile, but you can also see much deeper overlap in terms of patterns of heritability, in terms of brain changes, in terms of effective treatment. So there are several lines of research that support that, that change. If people start gambling but they never win, does that diminish the chance that they'll become a pathological gambler? There's no reinforcement. Or is there fantasy? Is it that there's a fantasy that they might win the attracts them and then gets them in trouble. 
yeah, the nature of the reinforcement in gambling has always been a, a big question, and I think is is still a big question. Is it simply about the money, or is it more about the uncertainty, the risk of the, the possibility of winning money? To answer your question in a kind of concrete sense, we do see that a lot of problem gamblers report in their very initial gambling experiences getting a, a major payout. So this is often called the early big win hypothesis. And for many years, this was just based on kind of anecdotal retrospective reports. But there is now quite good evidence showing that a lot of problem gamblers do have those really significant payouts, maybe the first couple of times they gamble. And you could think about those payouts as being important events in conditioning terms, like Pavlov's dog, or you could think about that in terms of economic terms, that if they're trying to work out the expected value of this activity, that early big win has biased their calculations of whether this is profitable or not. So that does seem to be an important factor. But certainly by the time someone has developed a problem with their gambling, their gambling has spiraled out of control, the money itself seems to be less of a feature. And it might be more about the thrill of actually placing the gamble or it might be about the sort of sense of escape that the gambling is, is providing that person. But it's not just a pure search for the win. Interesting, the notion of offering them a different environment. As you were talking, however, what occurred to me, and I know it's a very trite term, but it sounds almost as if people are finding what used to be called the adrenaline rush. They enjoy the task, not necessarily the outcome. Yeah, I think we can see that process. And yeah, you would think about that in terms of how the dopamine system operates. We know that early in the course of learning, if you're looking at linking a particular stimulus with a particular reward that happens a few seconds later, when you don't know what that rule is, the dopamine system mainly fires for the actual reward. But as you learn the association, the dopamine response changes. It actually tracks back. Now, if we think about that in terms of gambling on, say, a slot machine, that means at the very beginning, the brain's reward system might just fire to the actual wins themselves. But over time, that response is going to track back to the actual spin of the slot machine reels. And this fits, I think, very much the phenomenology that we see in, in problem gamblers, that it's more about the risk and the thrill of placing the, the bet in the first place than what actually happens afterwards becomes gradually less important. If we were to look at the general population, we talked a little bit about statistics. What are the real statistics between the people, shall we say, who are at risk and the ones who actually become full-blown pathologic gamblers? Or maybe not pathologic, that may be too strong, even dysfunctional gamblers, and of course we can play with the semantics of the term. The people at risk versus the ones who get into trouble with it. So what I can tell you about the prevalence of this disorder. So based upon the DSM-5 criteria, so the current criteria for what's now been called gambling disorder, there are nine criteria in that list and, and the patient needs to meet four of those criteria to warrant the diagnosis. Now the prevalence of that condition is generally in about 1%, maybe just under 1% of the population. And we can see that that bar is still set quite high in that we can see uh, gamblers who don't quite meet that diagnosis, but who are still clearly experiencing some of the harms from gambling. And these harms usually take the form of financial consequences, 
and they can then bill over to other aspects of the gambler's life, like their ability to hold down their job, family difficulties, uh, borrowing money, and, 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 and so on. So we can see, if we think about that less severe form as at-risk gambling, looks like about 3 or 4% of the population experience that within many jurisdictions where these kinds of prevalence studies have been done. So if you think about the two terms together, the problem gambling and the at-risk gambling, we're probably talking about 4 or 5%. So this is a reasonably prevalent syndrome. We have over the years heard that gambling problems are somehow related to the obsessive compulsive disorder spectrum. Is that still seen as one of the sources of people become obsessed with it? They begin to ruminate with it. Is it an OCD offshoot? Well, we can certainly think about the compulsive aspect of many addictions. Compulsion seems to be a core component there. We would talk about a compulsion as a response that continues once no longer an adaptive or functional response. Now, when the DSM-5 task forces were looking at pathological gambling, these were really the two alternatives for them. There was a sense that it didn't quite fit within the impulse control disorders with things like kleptomania and trichotillomania. And should it be moved into the addictions category alongside substance use disorders, or would it perhaps fit better within this obsessive compulsive uh, spectrum? And the ultimate decision based upon comorbid overlapping disorders and also looking at a lot of brain data was that it made more sense to move it into the addiction. And certainly the evidence for comorbidity between problem gambling and, and OCD specifically is, is fairly weak. There doesn't seem to be a lot of symptom overlap there. But I do think this construct of compulsion is very important across all of these conditions. And it's something that at a psychological level, at a cognitive level, we still don't have very good tests for measuring compulsion. And I, I do think we need to understand that process better. There has also been discussion whether or not this cluster of symptoms, maybe this cluster of pathology, is related to the intense use of video games. People who get on the computer for hours and play these games and they can't separate from them. Is there a connection between the overuse of the video games and a gambling phenomena? Well, in the DSM-5, the other condition that was considered for entry into that category was internet gaming disorder. And this is a condition that's had quite a kind of complicated history, a fairly short history, but complicated, in that initially people began talking about internet addiction. And I think the sense that's developed over time is that the internet itself might just be a, a gateway or a portal to a lot of different behaviors. And that the person might be gambling online, or they might be playing video games, or they might be using too much social media or pornography and that those are quite different things. In the case of internet gaming disorder, at the time the DSM-5 was released, there wasn't a huge amount of research on that, and most of the research that had been done had come out of East Asia, mainly China and South Korea, well, where there does seem to have been quite a, a kind of explosion in the prevalence of that condition, but there wasn't too much research from Europe or, or North America. I do think this has been a very fast-moving field, and my sense at the moment is that the 
brain basis does look similar. And we can also think about a lot of the features of gambling games, like the speed of the game and the kinds of reinforcement uh, schedules that operate within the game. Those transfer quite well to video games as well. So there seem to be quite a lot of similarities, both in terms of the people who end up with problems and also in the cognitive structure of the activity itself. So my suspicion is that in future revisions of the DSM-5, that condition may well end up joining gambling disorder in the behavioral addiction. Is there a general sense of the age span? Do we see this in young children, older folks? Is there a cluster in terms of what age group tends to have the greatest problems with it? Is that with video gaming? With anything. I guess with gambling. I'm sorry. Well, in the case of gambling, most jurisdictions have age restrictions on gambling, usually around age 18 or 19. Of course, as you see for a lot of addictions, the people who go on to develop problems, their initial experiences tend to be lower than that age limit. And that's also the case for problem gambling, where first engagement is often in the teenage years. And so I think there is a good argument here that we should think about all addictive disorders really as, as developmental disorders that are particularly linked to that classic adolescent window of, of risk-taking and changing in, in motivational brain circuitry. And then we do see the peak age for the onset of gambling problems is usually in the, the 20s or 30s. But then I don't think we should only think about it in terms of those age demographics. And we've been quite interested in gambling in older adults where a lot of the pressures of the elderly in terms of retirement, in terms of maybe access to life savings, in terms of social opportunities might make gambling a very a more appealing prospect uh, to them. And, and we're very interested in, in the development of gambling problems in older adults. That would be fascinating. I wish we had more time to get into it today. Perhaps we could look at that in greater detail at a later time. I have to jump to the question of treatment. And not to be simplistic, but it almost sounds as if treatment modality would be a addictionologist, someone who studies addictive behaviors. What works to treat these folks? How do we approach correcting them, modifying their behaviors, and so on? What's your experience in, in that domain? Well, the resources that are available for people with gambling problems do tend to vary quite a bit from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, and that does seem to be particularly the case in the U.S. as well. Most states or provinces will offer telephone helplines, States that have gambling will also generally offer what's called a voluntary self-exclusion program where the gambler who realizes that their gambling is getting out of control can put themselves on a list where they're effectively barred from all of the gambling venues across the state. And then we also, of course, see treatment provision as well. And, and how that's organized does vary quite a bit from state to state. The first line treatments are psychological treatments. Medications are not generally used as first line treatments at the moment, although there's some evidence that antidepressants and also opioid medications like naltrexone do seem to have some benefits, but I would say they're not widely used at the current time. The psychological treatment tends to involve a few different components. Cognitive behavioral therapy would look at changing some of the beliefs about the game, beliefs about the odds, 
maybe the tendency to think that runs of losses signals that you're due a win or the tendency to pay attention to near-miss outcomes. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy would also look at the emotional triggers for gambling and different ways to cope with those triggers. But that would also often be combined with some financial or debt counseling because huge amounts of debt is a very consistent theme in the problem gamblers that we work with. By the time they're seeking help, they might have accrued tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And if they haven't, quite often that would be because of bailouts or borrowing money or other things that have created them financial problems. And there might also be a component of family therapy to this as well, where often there's been a breakdown of trust with spouses or with parents or with children, and, and that that needs to be rebuilt. So this is quite a multifaceted treatment provision, but there is good evidence for the effectiveness of these programs. And does treatment generally resolve it, or is it a situation like an alcoholic, to various degrees, will still need some connection to Alcoholics Anonymous, maybe medications, for years and years and years? Is there that sense about it, or do people, do they get it under control? Can they fix it? I think problem gamblers, in, in my experience, do generally refer to themselves as having an addiction, and I think they do often subscribe to the idea that this is a problem that they'll have for a long time and that they'll need to avoid gambling for, for many years. At an empirical level in terms of the research, it is actually still quite unclear whether controlled gambling is a realistic treatment target or whether treatment providers should really just be talking about abstinence. I don't think we have a very good answer to that question at the moment, and I would like to see more studies looking at that. Dr. Luke Clark is at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. Sir, thank you very much. This has indeed been a brief overview, but I think a very thorough overview of the problems associated when people are in trouble with gambling. I thank you. Great. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.